Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And welcome to everybody who has been tuning in. Welcome back. If you're new here, then just a very simple welcome. Welcome aboard. And thank you to everybody who has been listening. We can't thank you enough. We really appreciate having an audience, no matter how small it may be at this current moment in time. We love our audience. Yes, Yes, we we do. do. (laughs) We said that at the same time. So also, dear listeners, please, if you like us, tell your friends. And if you like us, tell your enemies, too. Especially tell your enemies. (laughs) And, of course, for our social media things, you can check the description. Everything will be linked in there. We're on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. So please join us. Yes. We would be honored if you would join us. So it's not quite October yet, but if you want to, Brian, you can use that voice when we record our October episodes. Good. (laughs) All right. Well, today's story starts with a man named Daniel Brian Napier. He was born in Franklin, Georgia in the year 1896. His parents were John and Mary Ellen, and not a lot is known about his early life, but Daniel taught himself to make butterflies out of various materials, and he would sell them. So he was a little arts and crafts man, Brian. Oh, cute. Lots lots of uh, people like that in New Orleans area, especially in the French Quarter. Yes, but thankfully, most of the creative people who live in the French Quarter today were not as bad as this person was. Ah, yes, but there there are a few, you know, people who are intelligent, genius level, creative, who do some pretty horrible things or have uh-huh. historically, yes. Well, this is the story of one such person. So we're going to fast forward to Louisiana in 1934. Brian, what was going on in America in 1934? Well, 1934, it was still uh, pretty much uh, sort of around Prohibition era, still. Uh, you still had organized crime. You did. Yeah. And there was also still a, a depression going on, the Great Depression. There was still the Great Depression. It was, was, still, was still happening. And, of course, that was contributing to organized crime as you know as well as a prohibition of alcohol <laughs> right yes <laughs> well people and you know we can only really read about what the great depression may have been like for people at that time i know that you have told me stories that you, about your grandmother who grew up during the great depression but uh, people were scraping to survive in, in a way that i think most people in america can't just can't even fathom I have some understanding of it because of my grandmother, because it took me years to figure out, you know, after I grew up, sometime during my 20s, I figured out why my grandmother enjoyed, actually enjoyed stocking up on groceries when they were, you know, there were, when there were sales at certain supermarkets. And also why, whenever she took my sister and I to a buffet, she taught us to get her money's worth. Right. And she had that habit of hers, which you were, 
you were aware of when she'd bring she'd sneak Ziploc bags in her purse to buffets and take extra food home. And she did all of this stuff because she never lost her fear of starvation. Right. Because during the Great Depression, there were there were days when quite literally she did not get to eat. Exactly. And this was so I mean, and this was that time and this was in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is close to the Texas Louisiana border. It's about about five hours away from from New Orleans. Yeah, Shreveport, Texas. <laughs> you sure it's only five hours? I thought it was a little more than what when I put in the Google Maps, it says just like from New Orleans to Shreveport. Or is it the way I hours. drive? Maybe it's the way you drive, Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always get us there safely. That is true. You you have a perfect driving record. That yep, that's correct. So during this time in April of 1934, Shreveport, Louisiana, it is here that we meet young Maggie Mae Griffin. Some reports say that she was as young as 14, but she might have been 19 years old. Either way, she was looking for work to pay for her upcoming wedding. She was engaged to a man named Lee Looney. Maggie's mother was also named Maggie, and she was known as Maggie Dove. She was a widowed mother of six children. She then met Charlie Griffin, and together they had Maggie Mae Griffin. And at some point... Charlie abandoned the family. So you have a single mother of seven children in the Great Depression. Must have been a really, really rough life if you have to send your children out for work at the age of 14. That was actually quite normal. Mm -hmm. uh, kids as young as nine years old That's, were hitting yes. the streets looking for work, any kind of work, any kind of odd jobs, anything that would bring pennies in. And yes, I mean, pennies spent back then. You know, pennies meant something back then. Right. That's true. And, well, if you were a, an adult man, though, during the Great Depression, and I suppose sometimes if you're a woman as well, uh, people would hop into boxcars on trains and just get off and get on and off in different towns. They did this because they were looking for work. And desperately looking for work there were and there were transient camps that were established in various towns all over the country including Shreveport I don't know about other places but in Shreveport it was nicknamed the hobo jungle that reminds me of, of in Washington DC uh, around that same era there were encampments of World War one veterans mm. And the reason why they were in Washington, D.C. was because there was, a, there was a pension that was promised to them that they were supposed to eventually get. And because of the, their economic conditions at the time, during the Great Depression, they were trying to get it sooner. Oh, did, did they get it? Eventually, but not before there were uh, riots. Oh. involving their camps, massive protests, and a couple of generals who would become, who would gain notoriety during World War II, uh, General Patton, and okay. General... 
Eisenhower? Mac no, MacArthur. MacArthur, okay. Had actually been dispatched with troops to disperse their camps at one point. No kidding. And there were even flamethrowers used to burn their tents, their encampments. Oh, no. Oh. That's a, a, a very unflattering part of our military history that wow. is rarely reported on or, or, or acknowledged. I never knew that. I'm, I'm glad that you knew that and put that in this podcast. I, I first yeah. found out about it from, it was a, a documentary series by Oliver Stone. Oh, what was it called? The, uh, the untold, I believe it was called The Untold History okay. of, of America. And was this like a docu-series or was this yes. one? Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, that right. goes from right around turn of the century, I believe, on up to present times. Right. Okay. Well, the turn of the century, even before the 1930s, was just a wild time in general. But that's we're we're going to get back on topic. Um, so, money was so scarce that, and food sources were so depleted that even local wildlife, such as armadillos, rats, and squirrels, began disappearing from the area around the self-constructed shanties of the hobo jungle. So they were also doing a, a little bit of pest control, but at the same time, they were eating rats. I could see eating a squirrel. I'm not sure about eating an armadillo, but eating rats, that's, that, that, just show, that shows the desperation of the people at the time. Oh, yeah. So people are capable of enduring uh, horrible things to survive. Yes. It, you know, once you, once you get past the part of acceptance of your situation. You will do anything to survive. You'll do things that you never imagined yourself doing. Mm, yes. Daniel Napier was living at the homeless encampment in Shreveport, and he would go door to door trying to sell his butterflies. But he gave his name as Fred Lockhart. Maggie and her mother lived near the homeless encampment, and on April the 12th, Daniel and Maggie crossed paths. He immediately offered Maggie a job taking care of a sick wife and insisted that she start started right away. Daniel was thought to be eccentric but harmless, and his job offering seemed plausible. Brian, what, what do you think about this? What would you do if, if a guy just came up to you and asked your daughter, hey, come take care of my sick wife immediately, and I'll pay you? A man who doesn't know her, he just met her, and he's asking her that, I would be very suspicious. So would I. Unfortunately, though, he was willing to pay her the grand total sum of $3, which would have been enough money to pay for a wedding dress and a pair of shoes. And even though Maggie was excited, her mother was very suspicious. Yes. She was reluctant, but eventually she was persuaded to let Maggie go take care of this man's sick wife. And this would be the last time her mother would ever see her. Her body was found three days later in a heavily wooded area near Cross Lake on a Sunday morning by two fishermen named Will Marion and Albert Green. She died horrifically. 
Maggie's palms were slashed to ribbons in an attempt to defend herself from Daniel's knife attack. He raped her and then beat her and stabbed her multiple times. He cut her throat so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. He then covered her body with scraps of wood and debris in an attempt to burn the remains, and the autopsy suggested that Maggie fought him for as long as she possibly could. Obviously a, a monster. A monster. And I guarantee you someone like that knows what they're doing is wrong because try doing it to them. Okay? Try doing it to them and see if they don't tell you it's wrong if you do it to them. Yes. And also, Daniel Napier was estimated to be 50 years old. So this was a 50-year-old man who carried out this attack on a teenager. So... There were quite a few sexual predators who were middle-aged white men. That's very true. That's a very... That's a very real fact. Seems to be the biggest uh, demographic for those types, including, including child molesters. That is correct. So, Daniel Napier, it, he was quickly identified through some clothing remnants found near Maggie's body, and the murder weapon was left at the scene. The knife was identified as his. Now, in, within those three days before the discovery of Maggie's body, Daniel had attempted to flee Shreveport, but he was quickly caught by two detectives named L.K. Barney and Lloyd Napier, no relation to Daniel Napier. And they found him across the state close to the Louisiana-Mississippi border. By the time he got back to Shreveport, the story was front page news, not only in Louisiana, but across the country. And it was the top news story in the United States for almost one week until the story of Bonnie and Clyde's deaths, also a Louisiana-related crime, bumped Maggie Griffin and Daniel Napier off the front page. So what do you think of this so far? It's a uh, very sad it is. And it's unfortunate that the uh, the deaths of celebrity criminals just it bumps an important case off, you know, off the front page of the newspaper. Yes, and this story is about to get even more wild. But first we are going to take an ad break. And we are back. Daniel Napier confessed to the murder of Maggie Mae Griffin. In just, in, in just 36 days, the investigation, trial, and sentencing was completed. It's very fast. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a speedy trial, all right. <laughs> Daniel Bryan Napier was sentenced to death by hanging for his crimes. And the trial took place on April the 23rd, 1934, and lasted one day. The jury deliberated for only five minutes before finding Napier guilty. Prosecutors wanted to hang him that Friday, but he was executed on May the 18th, 1934, as ordered by the governor. Now, Brian, how do you think the public reacted to all this? A young, innocent girl gets shredded, assaulted, beaten to death in this in this time period of already very hard times. They were obviously very disgusted mm -hmm. and you know, angry, very upset 
that a young girl was, was brutally murdered for doing nothing more than seeking work. Yes. And you would, what would you say if I told you that the public gathered in front of the courthouse because at that time criminals were held inside the courthouse as well as executed there. And that's also where the trial was conducted and the angry mob stormed the courthouse. I'm not surprised at all because so many people were obviously thinking about, well, you know, what if that was my mother, my sister, daughter? Exactly. And they were, they, the protesters or the mob, whatever you want to call it, they were, they only occupied the first floor. They were unable to get up to the seventh floor where Napier was being held. And the mob was forced to disperse by the National Guard as Napier cowered in his, in his cell. He heard them. He knew that they were coming for him. Yeah, and, and that was, it, it was another sense of, of justice for, for him to experience fear just like a victim of his would. Right. You know, for, for him, the fear for his life for a change. Well, once the coast was clear and the damage was assessed, it had turned out that the mob had kicked in multiple doors. They broke numerous windows and someone threw, threw a rock at a juvenile court judge and struck him. The judge was injured. So that was a pretty, um, that, that it was a pretty angry mob. Yeah. Thro throwing rocks, breaking windows, kicking in doors. Yeah. Yeah. Mobs have been around for centuries. Very true. Yeah. Now, Leslie Peters was Maggie May's nephew. At the age of 85 in 2016, he gave an interview to the Shreveport Times explaining that he had witnessed the execution at the age of four years old. That's not a very good thing for a four-year-old to witness. Uh, four-year-old, some, some four-year-olds don't even understand that they're going to even die one day, let alone watch someone die. Well, his family talked about this all the time, all throughout his, all throughout his life. So it, it, kind of stands to reason that maybe he did understand more than we give him credit for at this point in time because this immediately affected his life. Oh, yes, I would think so. I mean, four years old, that's, uh, that, that's something that's quite disturbing to take in at four years old and, and something that you're really not going to understand very much. No, and I think that back then, children were sheltered less than they are today. That's very likely true, given that children as young as eight, nine years old were involved in the labor force. They were. Yeah. And even though there are sensationalized accounts of the execution, I am going to quote directly from Leslie Peters, who gives the probably just the most factual and no-nonsense accounts 
of the execution. He said that on the day of the execution, my whole family was there. My grandmother, daddy, all my aunts and uncles. He says that Napier was led into the room. They started up the stairs for the execution floor with a trap door in the floor. About halfway up the stairway, Napier stopped and looked at the family and said, I will see her in heaven. Do you believe he said that? obviously very delusional very cold very for, cold very calculated for some bizarre reason not feeling like he did something wrong although he knows he's well aware of the fact that it is wrong yes in, in intellectually but emotionally he doesn't think he did anything wrong because he was I guess in his mind, he was simply enjoying himself. Mm. And he felt a sense of entitlement to, to, his, to his pleasures. Well, he was, still, he was still cowering in his jail cell like a little wuss. So he was not actually that big and bad. He was just a very small, angry, hateful little person. So the executioner put a noose around Napier's neck. And when the moment came, they pulled the lever for the trap door. He hit the end of the rope and kicked with his feet. And Leslie Peters said that Daniel Napier kicked and struggled for more than 10 minutes before succumbing. And the execution of Jack Napier was the last execution by hanging in Cato Parish, which is where Shreveport is located. Well, that was additional justice, sir. He took 10 minutes. Him ten minutes to die. Couldn't you know? As they say, couldn't happen to a nicer fellow. <laughs> well, we're about to learn just probably how even less nice Daniel Napier was because prior to arriving in Shreveport, Daniel Napier was connected to the hanging of Leo Frank, who had been convicted of murdering a thirteen-year-old Georgia girl named Mary Fagan. In the aftermath of Daniel's execution, it is believed that Daniel Napier killed Mary Fagan and framed Leo Frank, and then incited a mob to lynch him. And in fact, Daniel Napier later admitted to being the instigator of the mob. So how do you like that? Poetic justice. Isn't it though? You could hardly make this stuff up. Now, the Fagan murder bore a strong resemblance to not only the murder of Maggie Mae Griffin, but also the August 1933 murder of Legion Jackson, the 18-year-old son of Napier's common-law wife. So it is possible that Daniel Napier killed two other young people. People like that, uh, they're not just going to murder one person. Right. They're not going to exercise their sadistic pleasures on just one person. It, it's a hobby. It's a, it's a habit. It's a pattern of behavior. And do you know an author and historian named Cheryl H. White would agree with you. She included Napier's crime and execution in a book called Wicked Shreveport. She co-wrote this book with Gary Joyner, Bernadette J. Palombo and W. Chris Hale. 
Cheryl H. White believes that there is, I mean, has said that there has always been doubt about Frank's guilt in the murder of Mary Fagan. Even though a certain pattern is shared amongst these crimes, it's just circumstantial. But in the case of Maggie May, some of Napier's butterflies were found in her room, so she had crossed paths with him even prior to the time when he met her mother and persuaded her mother to let her go off uh, to take care of his his alleged wife. Who didn't exist, of course. Who did not exist, no. Cheryl White thinks that Napier may have first seen Maggie May in downtown Shreveport, and she thinks that the butterflies were likely part of the ruse that Napier used to get Maggie close to him. And it is believed that the trinkets were part of his pathology and proved the crime was not random, but calculated and planned. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Disgusting. Robert. Someone who used such, you know, beautiful works of art as something to, to lure someone, to lure a victim. Robert Napier is buried in an unmarked grave at the Greenwood Cemetery in Shreveport as both the city and the parish were in agreement that he should not be under a monument at all. And I agree. I I agree as well. That's someone, the only reason to mention someone like that's name is that you you could learn about their crime and be aware of those time, the existence of those kinds of people and what they try to do to lure their victims. Very astute, Brian. This is why I love having you on the podcast. <laughs> and I'm going to end this with another connection. One of the witnesses of the execution was a Shreveport Times reporter, Julian Haas, who the following month would gain fame as the first reporter on the scene of the Bonnie and Clyde ambush. And the photos of the Griffin crime scene, the rioting and the aftermath, were taken by the paper's chief photographer, John Gasquit, who also gained fame for the photos he took of the Bonnie and Clyde ambush. And that is the story of the Butterfly Man, the, or the, the Butterfly Man of Shreveport, Louisiana. But speaking of the Bonnie and Clyde ambush, mm-hmm. my grandfather, my mother's, my mother's side. Okay. You know, the husband of the grand grandmother I spoke of earlier, uh, he got to see the car. Oh wow. And told me all about how you could you could see the light passing through it. And you you could look through you could practically look through the car and see someone on the other side of the car rather easily because of all the you know, all the holes punched in it. Well, the car is, is on display. I forgot the name of the casino, but is it is on display in a casino in Prim, Nevada. Oh, it was moved over there. <laughs> yes. Huh. Yeah. And in fact, uh, here here comes out here comes my nerdy stuff out. In the game Fallout New Vegas, they fictionalized it. They called it the Vicky and Vance Casino, and Vicky and Vance were <laughs> essentially Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And they had a you know, a, a car on display that was full of bullet holes. Uh, of course. Yes. <laughs> so in next week's episode, Brian, you're going to be taking the mic for our Coffee Talk episode and tell us some stories. 
right? Yeah, stories from my storied, rather colorful life. Some are going to be funny, some are going to be not so funny. But we are going to keep it family friendly. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening to us. We will talk to you next week. So until then, be safe, be kind. Remember that we're all human beings and don't park next to vans. If it's dark, it's dangerous, and you feel unsafe, don't be there in the first place. And if you're speaking to law enforcement in an official capacity and you are not a witness or a victim of a crime, lawyer up.